A warning before we start this episode, it contains some descriptions of animal injury. If you're listening with kids, you might want to save this one for later. This is an ABC podcast. I do remember thinking that he kept looking at me and going, what are we doing? Like, what is this? Who's this guy? What is this activity? And it it was a really difficult thing to do because it's like you've got this bond with a horse that you're so connected and you're so used to sort of telling them what you're doing. And it's like, well, you're about to die. And then out of the trees, hundreds, I'm not exaggerating. It sounds like I'm exaggerating, but I'm not. Hundreds of monarch butterflies, they came out of the trees and then they just all sat on his body, his still warm horse body, and they just sat there. I'm Elizabeth Coolass. Welcome to Days Like These. Animals can be that rare constant in our lives, a touchstone in how we navigate through our emotions and through the complexities of our world. And for many of us, the death of a pet is the first time that we understand the cycle of life. Today, our reporter Alicia Sometimes brings us the story of a lifelong bond between an artist and her beloved horse, and of the unbelievable moment when their shared connection brings them to the very boundary between the known and the unknown. Ty Snaith is a well-known artist. Her work is always full of vibrancy, playfulness and incredible colour. She's received numerous awards and undertaken residencies all over the world. She says her start in life was idyllic. And for as long as Ty can remember, she's always had a deep connection with animals and her environment. The farm that I grew up on, or half of my time, is in a place called Clombenane, which is at the base of Mount Disappointment, which is always a funny name, but it's just before the start of the Great Dividing Range in Victoria, so it's pretty dry and rocky and a lot of beautiful old trees and bees, and actually the farm that I grew up on is called Warrielda, which in Indigenous language means place of wild honey. It is a pretty beautiful place. It's very dynamic in terms of the what they can grow there. It's like the ecosystem's pretty amazing. They still have frogs and bees and butterflies and bugs. That was a, a joy growing up partly there. And we had a mud brick house that Dad built from scratch, which he still lives in. I was obsessed with animals as a little girl. My main thing was just to keep things alive. Like, I loved having pets. And also nurturing animals is quite an important thing, I think, to learn empathy and just what something needs without it being able to speak. Ty especially loved horses. The feeling of being with a horse but then also riding a horse is really something that you never forget. And as a child, it's a really liberating thing to do. So the independence of going out into the paddock and catching the horse I always remember as a big thing and you have this amazing thing where they come up to you and then you've got to put the rope around them and lead them back and there's so much trust involved in the whole interaction because at any point a horse can just spin around and kick you or run off and and then you've got to gear them up so like put 
the bit between their mouth and like they're really quite submissive to do this for a little girl as well like my whole childhood I would always do it myself but then the feeling of being on a horse is really quite empowering because you at once have to be quite vulnerable in accepting that this horse could buck you off at any minute but you have to be intuitive as well so you've got to sort of like communicate through the reins with the horse but you've got to listen to what the horse wants to do Going at a high speed just feels amazing. It's so... I used to sing as well when I was galloping on my horse. I used to sing, like, rock set songs. <laughs> like, really loud because no one can hear you and you're just going so fast. It's like... It's like the best feeling ever. And then you get off and you're like, well, what else is there in life? I can gallop really fast and sing She's a Little Bit Dangerous. <laughs> Living on a farm and seeing the cycles of life and death was something Ty was familiar with, but it's something you can't always prepare for. Sunshine was my third horse. She was a rat bag. We didn't have much money, so it wasn't like we couldn't buy expensive horses. So we had a series of rescues and, you know, hand-me-downs and things like that. And Sunshine was found on someone's property and she was a really ratty kind of horse, but I loved her. She died when I was about... 15. One day I was practicing uh, games. So games was when you had to carry a bucket and you could get a golf ball in the bucket and put it into a drum and, you know, race around stuff. I was really into games. She was very fast. And I'd ridden her over to the building site where my dad was building our house and I wanted to get a bucket to practice. And I left her standing with the reins over her neck and I ran onto the building site to get the bucket. And just as I was coming back out, the other horses galloped past in the paddock. She reared up and the reins came down over her neck and then she galloped off. But as she galloped off, the reins hooked onto a big piece of steel. It dragged behind her as she was galloping and as it dragged, it banged against her legs and it cut all three of her legs and her tendons were all hanging out. I was running after her, screaming, and by the time I could stop her, she couldn't really stand up. The tendons were all sliced. She was really distraught. The vet said, I suggest that you find a spot for her to be buried. So I walked around the orchard and found a spot for her to be buried, and then she couldn't actually walk that far, so we had to put her into the horse float, which was traumatic in itself, with three cut tendons, and then drive her to the spot and take her out of the horse float, and then stand, and she was so upset. I remember she was sort of frothing and not very happy, And but I wanted to be with her because, you know, she was everything to me. And then um, the vet put her down, One needle is all it takes to stop a horse's heart. But with a distraught tie watching on, this time it's not quite enough poison to stop all of Sunshine's body from moving. From creating the final huffs and snorts a big animal like that can make. It made me think, oh, she's still alive. The vet said, no, she's dead. And then she kept kind of flinching, so her muscles were twitching and... And they had to close her eyes and it was not a great experience for me. But, but one that I guess really stays with you about death. But we never see humans die like that or 
anything really, and horses are so big that it really makes an impact. I was feeling completely devastated, like I'd lost my best friend. After sunshine, Ty got another horse called Bess. She'd been tranquilised, and so when we got her home, she was actually a complete bitch. (laughs) Bess wasn't exactly the right fit. She used to bite my bum and she was nasty, really didn't like the world. Perfect rebound because she was horrible. Ty saved up as much as she could and with her dad's help, she got another horse that had already been broken in. His name was Nazif, or Ziffy for short. Ziffy was a funny character because he didn't really like all the pomp and ceremony of getting ready, but he went along with it. He was a quarter horse crossed with an Arab, so it's kind of an unusual cross in that quarter horses are quite solid and they're often used for cattle work and things like that, and Arabs are much more sort of flighty and uh, uh, spirited, you might say. When I first got him, it was quite dark, like almost brown. So it's kind of amazing because greys are interesting colour. They change their whole life. Sometimes they start as chestnut, then they go brown, then grey and then white. I got him when he was quite young. I think he was only three and a half years old. And then I committed my whole life to that horse. He was lovely, a lovely horse, but very sort of spirited. And other people tried to ride him and, you know, he'd buck them off and stuff. But we had a real bond, which often happens if you get them as a young horse. And then, obviously, I had no other... He was just my life for quite a long time. Together we learnt lots of stuff, like we learnt dressage and show jumping, And but he didn't like all the braiding and he hated that stuff. He hated being washed, and but he went along with it because I think there is an amazing thing that happens with horses where they want to serve us. If there's a respect, they do want to do the right thing for you but they have sort of preferences of what they like. So he did prefer the sort of high-risk jumps and fast things. Dressage, mm, he tolerated it. But I liked him. I liked that he had a character. He wasn't passive. He was quite difficult at times, but we were a good match. Ty was still dedicated to Ziffy, but found another gigantic love, making art. She went off to the Victorian College of the Arts and all throughout that time she was still riding and competing on Ziffy. Her move to the city meant that she went to gallery openings, parties and hung out with friends and Ziffy had faded slightly into the background. I would just ride every now and then but then the bushfires actually went through. So Black Saturday went through my parents' farm and they lost a lot of everything like they lost all their sheds and a lot of stock and all their dogs and fences so I asked if I could take Ziffy to my partner's family's place at Red Hill so he moved to the peninsula so he got like a (laughs) nicer life he got really fat so he moved and then he was on his own away from other horses so he did sort of go that was like his retirement really and then I would just ride on trails every now and then But I also then obviously had a partner by then and, yeah, towards the end of his life I was pregnant. He carried me through sort of my teenage years until I was an adult or had my own child and didn't really need him anymore. Ty was adjusting to her new life with a baby. 
She had written her first picture book and everything around her seemed to be changing. One night, exhausted and tired, she went off to bed. I had this crazy, vivid dream that I'd made all these really elaborate costumes for Ziffy. And it was so vivid that I woke up and thought, oh, I think I just have to make him some costumes. And it was really at a point in my life where I didn't have enough time to make my horse a costume. Like, really, what are you doing that for? So I had this big, colourful pom-pom headdress. And then I made another one where I bought a top at Savers that had this kind of gold chain halter neck. And I turned it upside down so that that became the ear holes. It was quite impressive, really. And then it had a whole neck kind of shimmery thing and... Then I made a giant scarf that went all the way down to the ground and trailed behind him. And then I thought, oh, now I've made the costumes, like, what am I going to do with it? At the time, I was sharing a studio with Joe Duck, who is now quite a well-known fashion photographer. And at the time, I explained to her I've made all these costumes, and she said, oh, well, we need to do a shoot. Let's do a fashion shoot. So I went out to where he was kept and I dressed him up and I'll never forget he was very it's like he knew it's like he was most horses you put a stupid big headdress on them in the paddock and they'll you know kick you or run off he just stood there and he just kind of stood there with like no lead or halter just stood there and posed he actually seriously just posed all day I remember just thinking this is like life was very vivid that day and it was really beautiful and it was just such a lovely moment to share with him. I was really proud of him and he looked quite regal and we took a whole series of photographs of him. I'm so glad, they were so beautiful and they ended up being published in a magazine and writing an article about them. Ty didn't know, but at the time Ziffy was quite sick. She had no idea that he would have been at the beginning of his decline. I didn't know because horses can't tell you. So he probably knew because he was probably not eating by then or not feeling well. But he just did this with me and it was kind of like we shared this understanding that that's what he needed to do. And in the end, that that's like the most amazing memories I have of him. And if I hadn't have done that, I would have hardly any photos, like nice photos of him. So it was this weird thing where it came in a dream. I made it impulsively, not knowing why. I dressed him up and then two weeks later he died. So it was Christmas and we'd gone down there to have Christmas with my partner's family and I'll never forget I arrived and went straight out to the paddock, which is what we always did, and took his rug off and he was just bones. Like, I just stood there and went, oh, I remember just thinking, oh my God, like he's got no body fat at all, just a bag of bones. I ran and got the phone straight away and rang the vet and said, oh my God, there's something wrong with my horse. He's just lost, he's just got no weight. I just knew, you know, when you see that, you just think, oh, you know, that's not good. And I checked all his teeth and his teeth were fine. And so I kind of knew then that it was really bad because they stand with their nose down. His nose had become hugely inflamed and all his um, hocks and down to his fetlocks, his feet were just huge, like he was wearing flares, but it was his body. So all the fluid had gone down. And even his sheath was all hanging down and the bottom of his stomach. And it just looked so painful and horrible. By that stage, he couldn't really move around. So there wasn't really an option to keep him alive. I remember the vet saying, 
if this was a human, you could keep them alive on in intensive care, but animals don't have that. You can't imagine them on life support, really, can you? I called my family. My dad said, well, you know that you have to bury him afterwards, and I hadn't really thought that through. And so, thankfully, my dad said, I'll organise all of that and I'll get there. He said, just give me some time, I'll organise someone to come and dig the hole, because the hole's massive. You've got to get a backhoe or a, you know, a digger, tractor, in to dig the hole. And this is a bit gruesome, but when you bury a horse, you have to dig the hole almost first, because... Once they die and the rigor mortis sets in, their limbs are stiff and so you don't want to break their legs to put them... That, that's really traumatic. But you have to sort of have the hole ready so that you can roll them in while they're still not stiff. The vet arrives. After having seen his horse die recently, he understands what she's going through. He asks where Ty wants to bury the horse. So I'd found a spot that was like this beautiful spot in amongst these big stringy bark trees and it's sort of in a bit of a circle. So I thought in the middle would be good and then I'll plant a tree on top of him. And so we walked him down there and I said, oh, before you do it, I want to plait some of his tail. So I plaited this long section of his tail and then put elastic bands on it and then cut it off because I wanted to do that before he died because it's a little bit weird doing it afterwards. But I do remember thinking that he kept looking at me and and going, what are we doing? Like, what is this? You know, we'd never done this. Who's this guy? What is this activity? And it it was a really difficult thing to do because it's like you've got this bond with a horse that you're so connected and you're so used to sort of telling them what you're doing and what we're, it's like, well, you're about to die. You know, like it's pretty, it's pretty brutal to sort of try and communicate that with but they know they're they're so you know animals have a sixth sense and particularly horses especially if you've had a bond with them since you're you know 14 years old or whatever we walked him down to the spot and it was a really hot day it was very stifling hot I remember thinking there was no breeze so it was like summer probably about 33 or something like that and really warm and there was sort of a buzz you know when all the insects everything was a buzz and I could feel all the cicadas I remember just hearing everything more intensely he just stood there and waited for me to tell him what to do and then the vet said are you ready and I was like oh no but yes you know are you ever ready the vet got out two syringes which were full of a fluoro green fluid that Ty thinks looks like kryptonite He administers them quickly. And then he just fell straight over, like like a building collapsing or something, you know, straight over to the side and his head straight onto the ground like a huge 600 kilos of body. I just sort of waited and the vet walked away and I sat down next to him and, I don't know, I probably was about to say some things or something corny like that. And then... Out of the trees, hundreds, I'm not exaggerating, it sounds like I'm exaggerating, but I'm not, hundreds of monarch butterflies, they came out of the trees and then they just all sat on his body, his still warm horse body, and they sat motionless. So their their wings stopped and they sat still for about a minute. 
And I remember just, there was no one there. So I was kind of going, oh my God, I, I wanted to show someone and there was no one to show. So I just watched. And then just like that, they all flew up at exactly the same time into the air and flew away. <laughs> and I remember thinking, wow, I, in that moment, my grief just disappeared because something totally magical happened. And I'm not a religious person, so, you know, I'm like, you die, your body goes into the ground, you're eaten by worms, you know. And I don't usually think past that. Maybe something else happens, I don't know, you know. Like, yes, there's a life force in the world, but I don't believe in God. That's about the extent of it. But in that moment, all of these questions just kind of flooded me with, what the hell was that? Like, what was that? (laughs) I mean, butterflies don't eat... Like, butterflies eat milkweed you know they don't there's nothing from the horse that they need so were they curious or were they taking his soul out of his body and taking it up to the sky so the butterflies all went and then then I heard this noise like and I thought, oh my god, what is that? So there's a tractor, big backhoe coming down the, and my dad hobbling down the after the tractor. And so all of a sudden, I was like, this beautiful moment, spiritual moment had happened. And then the tractor arrives to dig a big hole and roll him into while he's still warm. Ty realizes she wants to line the dug hole with flowers before Ziffy goes into the ground, before she says her last goodbye. I remember running like really fast and I cut all these roses. My mother-in-law grows um, beautiful roses and I cut a big, huge basket of fresh roses and filled the whole hole with roses and then, and then I was like, okay, I'm done. And then I, I didn't watch him go into the hole. And like for me, it was actually a real gift what happened. You know, there was something kind of magical about it that I was really thankful for. And for years afterwards, I thought about it and just... I still think about it. Every time I see butterflies now, I just think, you know, what are you? Like, what, where, where did you take him? So once this happened, I did get a bit more interested in monarch butterflies. In some cultures, they're called the wanderer or the wandering butterfly because they've actually migrated all over the world and they're quite mysterious They all migrate across the world at a certain time and there's footage of them in these forests in South America. I think it is hanging, like thousands of them hanging from these vines and it's pretty freaking crazy. Like it's just like a living butterfly forest but they come from all over the world like a pilgrimage back to this place and it did sort of make me think, why, maybe they're just taking all the souls back to this forest and like what happens there? (laughs) Maybe one day we'll find out that, you know, it's like this convention of monarchs that have collected all the souls from all over the world to do something with them that we don't actually know. Today's story was reported by Alicia Sometimes. Thanks for listening to Days Like These. We'd love it if you'd follow us on the ABC Listen app or your favourite podcast platform so that you can stay up to date with the latest. 
While you're at it, do us a solid and leave us a rating and a review. It helps new people find days like these. Also, if you've got a story of the day when everything changed for you, maybe a revelation, a surprise, a spanner in the works of your life, please get in touch with us. Email us or send a voice memo. We're at dayslikethese at abc.net.au. Days Like These is hosted by me, Elizabeth Kulas. Our lead reporter is Padabud. Our season three reporting team includes Sam Wicks, Belinda Lopez, Anthony Scully, Melanie Tate, James Viver, John Chia, Meg Bolton, Taylor Gray, and Alicia Sometimes. Our researcher is Tamar Cranswick. Our digital team includes Andrew Davies and Michael Delaney. Sound design and engineering for this episode by Kerry Dell. The supervising producer for this episode is Laura McAuliffe, and music in this episode is by Andrew Watson. Our brilliant executive producers are Ian Walker and Rachel Fountain, and our theme song is Yeah Nah by the Gooch Palms, courtesy of Ratbag Records and BMG. Extra music by Russell Stapleton. On the next episode of Days Like These, Shelley Morris was adopted as a baby, and she didn't exactly grow up in a community that accepted her. I asked in the class, uh, where are the Aborigines now? And the teacher said, oh, there's none left. I'd go home and I'd be trying to scrub the colour off my skin because other children had said I was dirty. The incredible story of how Shelley started searching for her family. He said, oh, my, are you a twin? I said, no, I'm not a twin, I'm adopted. And then he said, oh, my... God, you have a sister. She looks exactly like you. She's got to be a sister. She walks like you. She talks like you. And found her way home. Why do you talk like a white person? (laughs) And I said, oh, that's a very big story. That's next time on Days Like These. And in the meantime, why not try another great ABC podcast like this one? The hunt is on for the origins of COVID-19. But did you know a mysterious outbreak in a sleepy Brisbane suburb in the 90s has helped to speed up that search? I'm Olivia Willis, and on Patient Zero, we tell the stories of disease outbreaks, where they begin, why they happen, and how we found ourselves in the middle of a really big one. And this season, we go back almost three decades to hear how scientists track down the origins of an outbreak that literally had the streets running with blood. The viruses essentially came out of the forest and and we had a spillover event in suburbia that, you know, went on to have catastrophic consequences. That's just one of the stories we have on our new season of Patient Zero, a podcast where we trace disease outbreaks back to their beginnings. Search for RN Presents Patient Zero on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.